James chapter 4. Today we'll be looking at verses, we'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Uh, but I figure you would rather have two shorter sermons than one mega sermon. So today we'll look at verses 1 through 6. And next week we're going to actually read 7 to 10. Um, because in this passage, he's talking about the fact that conflict is a part of our lives. Conflict and the troubles it causes are part of the makeup of all of our relationships and the, the way we exist. But what's the cause? And then what's the cure? So today, we're going to take our first steps towards down the path to peace by considering the problem and considering the, 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 uh, the, the makeup of the problem. And then next week, we'll carry forward with the cure. So, verses 1 through 10, if you would please. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the living God stands forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this insight into our problem, and we ask that you would give us the grace and the faithfulness to hear what you are saying, and that you would indeed transform us by your spirit. We ask that we would wage war against our passions effectively and not in an endless cycle of stalemate. We ask that through Christ's blood and the Spirit's power, we indeed would have the victory. We ask this in Christ's mighty name. Amen.
All right, James, as you know from our study in this book, is calling us to a practical faith. That is, he wants us to live out the faith that we profess. Uh, One of the big sticking points for some people with regards to the letter of James is that he defines what it means to believe practically. That is to say, when you're considering what constitutes saving faith, what does it mean to have a faith that saves, we're oftentimes tempted to think academically or intellectually, that we utter the right words, we give a faith that so grips the person that it results in a changed manner of living. This is consistent with what Paul says. But we see in James chapter 3 that after having given us a great discourse into what we should be looking at in terms of pure religion and how it should manifest itself in us showing no partiality, how we should manifest uh, deeds and not just uttering that we believe, he concludes chapter 3 by calling us to heavenly wisdom. That to understand and appreciate and approve and give assent and appropriate all these things, it takes a degree of heavenly wisdom. And that's contrasted from earthly wisdom. And again, the line of, of delineation between what is heavenly wisdom and what is earthly wisdom, it comes down to the proof being in the pudding. What does it produce? Again, James is very practical. And so he ends chapter 3 by pointing out that heavenly wisdom is distinguished by it producing peace. Peace. In fact, he says in verse 18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Peace. Isn't that a nice word? I love the concept of it. I mean, when I was out on vacation and there was no commotion and I, I didn't have the kids fighting, or at least I couldn't hear them because they had thick adobe walls, and I was sitting outside and it was just serene and, you know, my, it was so relaxing that my, my, my pulse, like, slowed to an almost sleeping rate just just peace and then chapter 4 verse 1 interrupts that peace what causes quarrels among you you see peace is still on his mind when he begins chapter 4 But as he contemplates the peace that we want, the peace that's sown and then harvested by by those who are pursuing and manifesting heavenly wisdom, he cannot help but acknowledge the fact that our lives are more often than not not characterized by peace, by peace of any kind. Indeed, our lives are characterized by contention. I'm not talking even about the 
mass geopolitical wars. I'm talking about in our daily lives, the contention, the quarrels and fighting, the bickering, the, the, the back and forthing that goes on that just keeps our blood pressure elevated. We exist in a state of it. Mothers, I'm sorry that today your day has already started out stressful. I'm sorry that when you woke up this morning, it wasn't just roses and sunshine and, you know, your children on their best behavior and your, your husband having intuitively foreknown what exactly to say and do at the exact moment he should have said it per your intuitive inside. I'm sorry that on the way here, you got stuck at the red lights and that those nincompoops at the city hall didn't fix the road and you probably spilled coffee on yourself hitting a bump. I know I did, driving my wife to the airport. Some of you, I hope not this morning, because it's Sunday and you shouldn't be doing this on Sunday morning, but I'm sure some of you have been watching your 401k or IRA. And as this market just keeps going down and down, you're probably like, man, when will these jerks quit messing with the economy so I can retire? All of us go through life irritated at other people, at other circumstances, all the time. And you know what we do? We say that the reason we're angry is because my spouse is a jerk. That's it. They're a jerk. My mother was right. They're a jerk. I actually had that in counseling one time. Not with my counseling, but I was counseling someone. <laughs> or, or my kids. My kids are just rotten. My employer. They're just creeps. My government. Oh, don't get me started. It's always the other person's fault. And you know what excuse we use to really tell ourselves that it truly is the other's fault? The fact that it sometimes is. You, you see, when, when, when he makes this statement here about our desires being at war and that's the cause for, for, for conflict, and He's speaking generally, but not absolutely. You see, we learn from the life of Jesus that there, there, there are times to be legitimately angry. There are times where the good and right and noble thing is to enter into a conflict. But you know what we do? Because we're self-absorbed, anytime we're upset, that's what we say it is. This is righteousness, the righteous me versus the unrighteous other. And it's a matter of truth and God's word and everything. 
and we lay it on the other person. But the fact of the matter is, if we get aside from the excuse-making, telling ourselves that, oh, I'm righteous, the fact of the matter is, is he indicts us, James does. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? That's the state of affairs that we live in. Our homes, even when I'm alone, or when we're in church, wherever, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, that's what we can see. That situation normal, all messed up. And what's the cause? He says in verse 1b, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you. Now, the word passions is the Greek word hedone. It's where we get the word hedonism, hedonist. It refers to the fact that there's something in us driving us. We want to be happy. John Piper has, has, has hit this one hard his whole career that mankind is driven primarily by a desire to be happy. The thing that causes happiness varies. There are monsters in the world who desire to be happy by torturing, killing people. That's like Genghis Khan. But understand, Genghis Khan did what he did because he wanted to be happy. There are people who want to build buildings. They want to feel fulfillment. They want whatever it is, we pursue happiness. So what is the thing that is driving you? And oftentimes, they are in conflict with what you know you should do. Hence the presence of a war within you. Now, right here in this passage, James is describing the exact same situation that Paul does in Romans chapter 7 to include the language of an internal war. The difference is that in Romans 7, Paul is describing the situation as it relates to his internal desire to keep the law of God. So it's more vertically focused. Here, James is once again, because he's practically oriented, he's describing the same internal war in terms of its horizontal outworking. You have competing desires within you. You are driven by a desire to be happy. And if you've experienced the new birth, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit has been implanted within you. And so you have a desire to please your heavenly Father. And this is at war with your flesh. And that causes friction. Fighting is unpleasant. And he uses the language of war just to underscore the horror of the battlefield. Your flesh desires a scorched earth policy. Understand, when you're fighting war, 
one of the combatants has to die. The old man in league with the forces of Satan wants to destroy the new man. And Christ has conquered death and hell, and the old man is doomed. But they're both fighting, and this manifests in our own externalized conflicts. See, the trouble out there is symptomatic of the turmoil in here. And because of this conflict of desires, we have the situation we see in verse 2 where we desire and don't have. We covet but can't obtain. And the result is fury, murder. He's, he's being hyperbolic here to describe the intensity of the anger that we can pour out on others who get in the way of our happiness. Isn't it, isn't it interesting that um, when we're pursuing our interests and we know what we want, we have this picture of what will make us happy, uh, when we don't get it, we get angry. It's like the opposite of happiness is not sad. It's like the opposite of being happy is being angry. We get angry at it. But verse 2 underscores the frustrated experiences that we have, the frustrated lives that we often lead. We covet and cannot obtain. We see something that someone has and we want it so bad. But it doesn't matter what I do, I cannot get it. And in the meantime, what am I doing as I'm, I'm digging, I'm clawing, I'm scratching, I'm trying to find a way to make the object of my desire mine, but I'm coming up short. Brothers and sisters, he's using this kind of language to describe the very real ways we live and exist in relationship. How often do we find ourselves angry at our spouse? They're not like the spouse I had in my mind. They're not like the spouse I see on TV. They're not like the spouse I see that that other person has. How often do we get mad at our children because our children don't look like the children on whatever show? Or my children don't look like the children in that person's Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat post. How often? And so we want these things. And we start clawing and bickering and struggling. And sooner or later we have conflict because you're desiring stuff that you're not getting and I'm desiring stuff I'm not getting and sinners are going to sin. And that's the conflict. 
But then it gets worse. Our passions resulting in desires affect us spiritually. And, and, and that's one of the big myths that you have got to get past. The idea that I as a Christian can be totally fine with God. My relationship is, is I'm seeing eye to eye with Jesus. Meanwhile, my relationship with everybody else is just getting flushed down the toilet. That is not the case. You see, sin works against your spirit. Sin wants you to die. And so what is one of the first things that will happen to a person who is struggling with the frustrated anger that comes with not getting what they want? One of the first things that happens is you stop praying. And you find yourself growing cold towards the Lord. You probably don't even perceive it because that's the numbing effect of sin, how you just wake up one day and realize, I haven't prayed in weeks. I haven't read my Bible in months. Or perhaps I haven't gone to church, whatever it is. But this here, why do you not have it's not because you haven't been trying hard enough. You ask and don't receive. Or I'm sorry, you do not have because you do not ask. There's prayerlessness, but then once we do pray, we ask and don't receive. Why? Because we've asked wrongly to spend it on our passions. He's perfectly describing the process by which an idolatrous heart seeks out God eventually, not for the sublime value of who God is, but rather God as genie, God as Pez dispenser in the sky. I want this thing, and I'm so frustrated, I've been clawing at it, and I can't get it, and so I guess I'll go to the genie in the sky and see if he'll get it for me. And he says, that's why you're not getting it, because you're asking wrongly to spend it on your passions. And then, verse four hits hard. You adulterous people. Adulterous. He describes this hard-hearted, selfish orientation of life filled with with competing, warring passions that we refuse to take decisive action against. He describes it as adultery. He reaches back into the Old Testament and what follows is a whole bunch of Old Testament imagery that describes Israel. He calls us adulterers because who is our husband? Christ. We're being unfaithful. And then he says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. What friendship with the world? We're just talking about my desires here. We're just talking about me wanting the things I want. We're just talking about me wanting to make sure I get my fair share. What are you talking about? Friendship with the world. 
That's just it. What is the principle, the principle most unwavering commitment of worldliness? The pursuit and magnification of the self. That goes back to the garden. When you want to understand worldliness in any of the forms it can take, in any of the cultures of the world, you have to understand that worldliness is fundamentally wrapped up in the promise. If you eat of that, you shall be like God. And what is a deity? Well, what are all the prerogatives of deity? You get to do what you want. You get to determine your own reality. And, and we're, not, we're not harmless, just a bunch of libertarians wanting to be free and not mess with you. No, what does a God do? A God gets worshipers. And so humans seek to exert themselves over other humans. So when we have within us this warring desires and these desires that are probably and usually culturally shaped, we're acting out of the impulse from which all facets of worldliness are born. The principle of I want my way and I want it now to the point that I'm willing to fight you to get it. That's me wanting to be like God. And if I have that, then I'm worldly. And such an attitude, such a disposition is hostile to God. Now, brothers and sisters, that is the problem. But here's the glorious, and I I just want to tease you with the glorious hope. Verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? God's spirit is within you. You were purchased by Christ and the spirit of the living God resides in you and you were saved that you might be holy. And so when the temple of the living God is unholy, God gets angry. God is jealous for preserving that which is rightfully his. And that's you. But when God gets jealous for that which is his, does he abandon it? Does he reject it? No. He goes to war to restore and protect it. And so, that's where we're going to look next week at how God changes us that we might make our way down the path of peace. But before I close, I want to apply this passage not just to every one of us, 
But I want to specifically apply this passage, give a little word to parents, to mothers. You're a sinner. And there's war within you. Okay? This passage just described you and me. It described everybody. But listen to me very carefully. Some of you... Uh, some of you are going to be tempted to go to one extreme or another as a mother. There are going to be some who try to be like these helicopter moms and, and, and just want to just so be overprotective, thinking that if you just create the right conditions for my kid, they will be successful. They will be safe. They will be godly. They'll make the right decisions. To that I say, chill out. Your children are sinners, okay? On the other hand, some of you are going to say, well, that's hopeless. I'll just free-range parenting. Well, understand your job is important and vital, not because there's any chance that you can affect new birth of your children, but you are the one to teach them to fear the Lord. You are the one to teach them how to rightly understand the, the turmoil that is within them. You are the one who is to frame reality for them so that they can see the spiritual realities and look to the one who can save them. But have grace with yourself, okay? Your child's eternal destiny is in Jesus' hands. Your job is to do the best you can, but understand you are not ultimately responsible. Have, have, have grace with yourself. If your children grow up and make their own decisions, that's on them. It's, it's not your fault, okay? Okay? You do the best you can, but let your children live as, as people made by the Lord who have to give an accounting to him for their actions, okay? This passage is describing you, and it's describing your husband, and it's describing your children. There's conflict because of sin. It's not your job to root sin out of everyone's lives. It's your job to help them seek the one who will rip it out of their lives, okay? All right, that's all I wanted to say. So let's go ahead, let's bow, let's pray, and we'll come back next week and see how the Lord injects himself into the situation that we might have peace. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for this passage, how it shows us and illuminates for us the nature of our problem of why we have so much conflict and stress in our life, why we're so prone to frustration. Lord, grant that we would lay at your feet our misplaced desires, our, the, the desires that are maybe even for good things, but we've elevated the desired state of them to an unnatural level. Help us to live as befits followers of Christ, to treasure 